Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hi there. We are back, and we have been on the road this week. We just um, went down to Fillmore, Utah last night and met some delightful people for our fireside. And um, we really enjoyed that. We love rural Utah because I'm from rural Idaho. That's where I grew up, and that's my roots. So it's always fun, but you think to be with good people. I love it, especially this time of year, because, uh, you know, it's nice to leave this still snowy and somewhat blustery Wasatch front. And as you drive down the I-15, every mile you go, it kind of opens up and the horizon gets bigger and the weather gets a little warmer and the landscape gets a little greener and... uh after we finished in Fillmore, which is kind of a famous place in our family because it's halfway. Uh, when we used to drive to St. George or to Lake Powell or other places in uh, southern Utah, the kids would always say, hey, there's Fillmore. We're halfway there. So it was kind of fun to stop in Fillmore. And well, they, not halfway to Lake Powell, but halfway well, to St. Yeah. George. And we had uh, the Fillmore stake of the church, of the LDS church, and two of the Delta stakes, some wonderful people. And we talked a lot about the finding the balance between strictness as parents and being too laid back and too sort of laissez-faire. And as a result, losing the kids. There's a lot of interesting studies that show that the the parents who really lose their kids, who really have a problem with, you know, rebellion and with uh, really total breakdown of communication, are often on one of two extremes. They're either completely laid back in the sense that they don't give the kids any guidance or any laws or any boundaries, or they're so strict and so rigid that those poor kids don't have any option if they're going to become themselves other than to just rebel. And so, anyway, we had a good time with those folks, really a good time. uh, We did, and it leads us really to what we want to talk about a little bit today, and that is uh, what a difference education makes in our children's lives according to what, you know, how they're treated and um, categories they're put in and labels they're given and so on, which goes right along with that thought of uh, being too much on one end or the other. You've all had the experience as parents of having a teacher who made all the difference in your child's life, just turned them around. I, we can we can go back with every one of our kids, Linda, I think, and pick out one teacher that was so good and so much what that child needed at the moment and really set the stage and set the course for that child's education for the rest of his or her life, rest of the high school, rest of the college, whatever. And we all as parents love teachers like that. Unfortunately, we've also probably all got experiences where one of our kids has been in with a teacher that really... I hate to say it, but to be blunt, sort of discouraged that child in terms of learning or for some reason didn't match up right and sort of was a setback for a child. Oh, man. You know, I can think of every one of the great teachers in our children's lives. I can think of one especially bad teacher, and she actually lives in England, so no one would ever (laughs) know her. But honestly, she was a terror 
She was so terrible. She was a screamer, and which just did not jive with the personalities of our children. Our oldest daughter first had her and had such a struggle with her, and we just thought, oh, she's just so sensitive. And then we came, um, we went home, I guess, and then we came back to England, and lo and behold, she ends up teaching our darling son, Jonah, who was also very sensitive, but we were on a trip to a different part in Europe, long way away. Actually, I think we are in Sri Lanka. And we got a call that our son was in the hospital. And, of course, we got the next plane home. In the day before smoking was prohibited, we sat in the back of the plane amidst people smoking like stovepipes. It was horrible to get back to that little boy. And he actually had been hospitalized because she had terrorized him so much. Do you remember that? It was just well, they didn't, yeah, they didn't know if he had ulcers or what, but it was, it was terrible. And, and this, this, this teacher had literally put him in the hospital. Now, let's not dwell on the negative because, like right. we said, we do have so many stories of great teachers that help turn our kids around. And the reason we're thinking so much about this week is that, as some of you listeners know, one of our children is a teacher. Our son, Josh, who is uh, a teacher, a third-grade teacher in Gilbert, Arizona. And, you know, you can take this with a grain of salt because parents are never totally objective, but we think he's the best elementary school teacher on the planet Earth. And apparently a lot of parents agree because oh, he's got a waiting me. list. Oh, my gosh, he's got a waiting list. People are doing everything to try to get their kids into his class. and. It's just another example of how much difference a good teacher can make and, frankly, a good system. This, he, yeah. he teaches in a charter school, and he's looking at another charter school. Charter schools are something we think are great where they can work out financially because they allow a school to say, well, we're going to focus on the performing arts or we're going to focus on the sciences. And, it gives parents a little more of a chance to be the consumers or the customers who design their own kids' education. And that's really where I wanted to go on this, Linda, is the idea that parents are in charge of their kids' education. The sooner we realize that, the better parents we become. The education of our children is not up to the schools. It's not up to the government. It's not up to the Department of Education. It's up to us. Now, now clearly, we welcome the help we can get from good teachers and from good uh, schools. But the best parents, we think, are the ones who say, I'm in charge of my kid's education. I need to be sure I have this child in the best school for that child and hopefully with the best teacher for that child. And I need to supplement what he learns at school in the home, and I need to be very involved in his education. Many studies, as you know, show that the, sin the single greatest and most important variable in how well a child does in school and how much he learns is the level of involvement of his parents. Well, and the level of um, philosophy of the school, because uh, we were just talking uh, with our son recently about schools who believe that children should be divided according to their abilities. And um, it's so scary to do that because if you put kids in the lowest group, you can call it anything you want, but they know, they figure out that they're in the dumb group. And it's a stigma that hangs with them forever. Our son is so opposed to this. 
And interestingly, just this week in the Desert News in Salt Lake City, um, we had an article about the fact that they have they were going back on that and saying we're not going to do that anymore. And now they've started saying, no, we are going to do it, even though they have proven that it is not the best thing for a child. Uh, research shows it just doesn't work, and kids get labeled, and it can change their whole life. Well, in common sense, really, you know, uh, again, we take our lead from this son of ours who's such a good teacher, but he relishes having kids of different different abilities in with each other. Let's say we're talking about math. He loves having some of his kids who are really good and some who are struggling because he manages to find ways to use the kids who are doing well to help and inspire and kind of lift up the level of the ones who are not so adept. And, you know, there's even some movements, and I'm, I'm not qualified to be a, a judge or even have a, a strong opinion on this, but there are some who say the old model of the little one-room school where kids were not even divided by grade where you had some seven-year-olds and with some nine-year-olds or whatever, that the cross-pollinization of those age groups actually made the education process more complete. I don't think we're going to go back to that, but I do think within grades and within classes, you need to expect it. And a good teacher, like our son Josh, will, will, will help kids to overcome confidence problems by saying, you know, you're not as good maybe as Billy is in math right now, and that's why it's nice that Billy can help you. But, you know, you're actually better than Billy. You can help him in in social studies or in creative writing or whatever it is, kind of building an atmosphere in the classroom that, hey, we're all individuals. We don't have to measure ourselves by whether we're as good as someone else in one subject. We all need to find our strengths, and we all need to work on our weaknesses, and we can do it together. You know, we are admirers of the wonderful Clayton Christensen, who has written a book called Disrupting Class, which has taken the country by storm. We particularly like him because our daughter is working with his think tank in Palo Alto right now. But I especially like his philosophy of saying that every child has a different way of learning. And as you parents out there know, in our day and age, we were just kind of poured into a mold and everything was taught the same way. And, um, and unfortunately now, test scores are so much more important than anything else in many, many schools. But what he's saying is that every child has a different way of learning and we have to figure out their way of learning. We had a, a son who just could not learn to read. He was um, had special time, special teacher every day at school. He tried so hard, and he just would lay his little head down on his desk and get a horrible headache. Remember that week? We actually took him over to the university hospital, and they did all kinds of things, including spraying his neck with his stuff to try and get him to relax because he was trying so hard. He just could not learn to read. And we thought, oh, gosh, is this child... We spent more time worrying about him. Is this child going to be able to graduate from high school? By seventh grade, he still wasn't reading. I was going down to junior high and reading with him for an hour every day in a separate class. And the point is... But the point is that he finally, I mean, we finally figured out his learning um, issues was that he's a visual learner and he's an auditory learner. And he learned that he can listen to books and totally understand. And of course, every textbook is not on tape. 
but he now is our best read uh, reader, I think, in our family. He knows well, more about the world and everything that's happening because he is on Audible all the time. Well, and, and not only Audible, but he learned that he had a great skill for learning from other people. And he, he got to where he'd pick out the smartest kid in every class and befriend them and get whatever help he needed. So all kids find their own way. And I think... I'm glad, Linda, that you brought up Clayton Christensen and his whole theory of blended learning. I mean, it's not just his theory. A lot of people talk about blended learning. And what they normally mean is, you know, combining individualized computer learning and online learning with classroom experience. When we come back after this break, we'll talk a little more about what we think blended learning ought to mean because it should blend what goes on at the school, what goes on at home, what goes on in the child's total life. So we'll be right back after a brief break. Here we are back, Richard and Linda Iyer. Iyer's on the road. We've been on the road a little bit this week, and we're heading out again. We just keep on the road trying to meet good parents and be their friend and make them into our friends. It's good to talk a little about education today. All parents worry about education, and again, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but we find the parents who seem to be doing the best are the ones who don't moan and groan and gripe and cry about how bad the schools are. They're the parents who say, you know what? It's really my children and it's my responsibility. The buck stops here. And if they're not getting everything they need to at school, then I need to find a place for them to do it. We're we're not great examples of that, Linda, but we, we always did. I remember we once put our kids in and we hired a poetry teacher because we didn't think they were getting enough creative writing. I remember another time we homeschooled them for a brief period. We admire in some ways those who homeschool all the time. And I'm not suggesting you take over. I'm just suggesting you as a parent say, my children are my responsibility, and if I have to teach them around the dinner table to supplement what they don't get in school, I'm going to do it. And we'll we'll uh, elaborate on that a little bit more in a minute, but I do have to stop you at homeschool for a minute because when our children were young, homeschooling just would have been impossible. There was not that much help. There were great, valiant parents that were doing it. But now they have so many great things for homeschoolers. Curriculums, there's so many to choose from. Including getting together with other families. We have a homeschooler, in, started in Washington State, and they have a great program there. But now they're in Hawaii, and their oldest daughter is being homeschooled, and two are going to the little elementary school around the corner, the state school. But it really is amazing to see what these kids are learning at this um seventh grader is just doing so well and she does meet with her seven other kids twice a week and so that they can compare notes and go on field trips and things like that but basically she does most of her education online and the program's wonderful her mom graduated from harvard and so we don't have any uh, worries about what she's learning we know she's on top of it and 
it really is a wonderful thing if you can homeschool your kids. But whoa, again, we're in, yeah, we, we did not work very well, well. We don't advocate it, and we don't not advocate it. But again, what we do advocate is find your own formula, and that's really kind of what we think blended learning ought to mean in the personal sense. Is you know, you're you're like the general contractor. You're the parent, and you're going to say, I. Part of my children's education is going to be what they learn in public school or wherever they go to school. Part of it is going to be what we teach them in our home. Part of it is going to be other classes where we try to supplement or camps or things we send them to. But all in all, we need to have a view of are they getting a full and complete education? Are they getting prepared for life? Are they getting prepared for college? And parents who take that seriously usually find a way to do it. Now, many of you listeners know that we originated a curriculum for preschoolers called the Joy School. Many of you may have had children in that program, or maybe you have children in it now, but uh, I, the reason I bring it up is I think a lot of people who had done Joy School with their preschoolers at least thought about whether they should continue, because Joy School is a home-based program where moms rotate as the teacher, and and they use a curriculum and they, they teach themselves. And what we learned through that program is that even moms or dads who, who would say, well, I'm not a teacher, I could never teach kids, I, I'm not trained, I don't have the ability and so on. If you give them a good curriculum, they surprise themselves at how good they are at teaching. Now, when a child gets to be five and finishes preschool and now the decision is do we continue to homeschool him in some way or do we send him off to the local school, I would say that that decision is not as important as the one that says whatever we do, we continue to be in charge. And the beauty of today, as Linda alluded to, with online resources being so immediate and so extensive, is if you get the feeling as a parent, you know, my child is doing well in this and this and this, but I don't think he's getting enough training in, let's math. say, math or let's say writing or whatever you judge it to be, you have the capacity without killing yourself or spending an overabundance of time to find little programs online that you can help with that problem. And you don't have to go very far because the Khan Academy has helped for any child at any age that's working with math and right through college, I think. They have an amazing online program. It's free at Khan, spelled K-A-H-N, and Khan Academy, I think it's .com, might be .org. But um, this is a genius who's figured out how to help kids with math, and it's just amazing what they can learn online. If they're struggling in school, there are just so many resources now that you can go to that we didn't have. Well, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I think that uh, I'll give you kind of an extreme example. I think I, because I, I don't want you to be a parent who gets too involved in the earlier and earlier competitive game of education. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, you know, we were read, I was reading a book earlier today about uh, where the fellow is saying, you know, here's what happens to kids. They get in pro, really aggressive parents, put them in some kind of a pre-preschool program to get them accepted into the best preschool in the area. And they want to get them in that so they can get them into the best private school. So blah, 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 blah. 
until they finally end up at Harvard. And then he was saying, I've seen a lot of my students at Harvard who have never been anywhere but in the top 1%. They were in the top 1% of all five schools they've gone to to get here. And now they're at Harvard, and guess what? 99% of them will not be in the top 1% anymore. And he was talking about the depression that comes and so on. And I think a lot of times parents play this game, this competitive game about whose child can get in the best school and so on. I want to use ourselves as a little bit of a counterexample. All of our kids went to public schools in Salt Lake City, Utah. And to be blunt, they were not the greatest public schools. They, I, I think they were doing the best they could, but Utah has a little problem with dollars spent per pupil because of the youth and dynamism of our population and so on. And what I want to say is it didn't matter in the long run. Several of our kids went to Ivy League schools. They managed to make up for what they had missed. I think we made up for some of it with what we taught around our own dinner table and trying to figure out where they needed to be supplemented. And so don't play the competitive game, play the personal game where you're just making sure your kids get what they need education, education-wise. You know, actually, in hindsight, we probably should have sent our oldest child to a private school. She was very shy and a little bit socially awkward when she was young, and she would have thrived, but we didn't. But she didn't and thrive anyway. She did thrive. She went off to Wellesley College, which is just an amazing liberal arts college in the Boston area, and she said it was really intimidating at first because so many kids had come from private schools, boarding schools. They had been so well-trained to get there, and uh, she just um, came from a little high school in, in Salt Lake and had had a couple of AP classes. But you know what? She graduated magna cum laude. She did just fine. She... Uh, melted into what she did. She realized what she had to do and she made it for it. I was just reading an article last night in The Economist about preschool because you mentioned that, Richard, and it was so interesting saying that they are so concerned about getting these children into Head Start because the, the low-income families don't have the money to get their kids into uh, good schools and preschools because they're expensive. And they were saying, really, by third grade, any advantage they had goes out unless they put forth the effort, unless they have the help from home, unless from the they home, have from the parents. You know, all of the support that they need to really progress. So it really is quite an interesting thing how important education at home is. And I don't mean to sound, some people are going to, some teachers out there are going to be mad when I say this, but I, we are, our little mantra at our house was never let your schooling get in the way of your education. There are things that you can do outside of school that may be even more important than having them in school every day. Well, and what we mainly meant by that is, is when you can take a child on a trip or get him into a situation where he can learn by exposure and experience, he's probably going to learn more than he could in school. We would always say to the teachers, hey, don't stress about it. We'll have him write a special report when we get back from this trip or whatever. Yeah. Some of the teachers didn't like it too well. But, again, you're in charge of your kids' education, that's right. not and the school. We went to New England, lived there for a month, and that's when we homeschooled. And we had an English teacher who said, you know, this is just not acceptable. And we said, we're sorry, we're going to do it anyway, and we will do anything you say. Okay, special report on 
Salem witchcraft. So we went to every house in Salem. We had pictures, slides, everything. When we got back, she was not she would not even allow him to show the slides, and she gave him a seat. Well, so, it worked out. It, was uh, it worked out good for the overall education. Now, Linda, before we run out of time, I can just hear. I'm tuning my ear to the listeners out there, and I can hear some of them saying. Hey, that's fine for you to say, but do you realize how competitive it is to even get into the college I want today? I mean, you may be out there saying, it's my whole dream to have my kids go to BYU, and unless they're really, really, really good on the tests and so on, they can't even get in. So how can you take such a casual approach to education? I don't think what we're saying is to be casual. I think we're saying each parent has to decide what matters most? If you're a parent where you think your child's life is going to ebb and flow by whether they get into BYU, then what you should do is work on in every way you can and whatever way you think is best for your child, helping that kid to do well on the SAT scores and the ACT scores. So, so I'm just saying we don't know your goals, but whatever your education goals are for your children and what their goals are as they begin to develop their own educational goals you're the facilitator the buck stops with you and that's the way it ought to be because we parents want to do well by our kids amen we'll see you again very soon thanks for listening in bye-bye 